everybody. I'm Josh Constein, your host of Press Club, where the big names in tech talk about the big ideas. And social DAOs and cryptocurrency-powered communities are one of the biggest ideas changing how we collaborate, cooperate, and hang out and meet friends on the internet. And today I'm joined by the mayor of FWB, aka Friends with Benefits, one of the world's biggest uh, and most popular crypto social clubs. It's a social DAO where you know cultural leaders, activists, and artists come together uh, to fund each other's projects, to vote on cool proposals, and start to build the future of what culture looks like. And so I'm here, I'm the, your host, Josh Constein, former editor at large for TechCrunch and now a venture partner at early stage VC fund SignalFire. And we're gonna be talking about the future of friendship. So thank you so much, Alex, for joining us today, the mayor of FWB himself. Now, I'd love to just start off by asking a little bit of like, why does FWB exist and like, what is it really? <laughs> I love that question. First off, thanks for having me and, and stoked to just get to chat with you. I feel like we've crossed like so many different paths through our individual lives. And the first time we're having like, we get to like have a deep dive is in front of like 500 strangers, which is always fun. So excited for this conversation. Why FWB? I guess that is a really fun question. The answer is like, we didn't really know at the time, right? I think uh, Trevor uh, McFredris, who founded FWB, uh, he's sort of the inventor and the brainchild behind Lil Michaela. Uh, you know, the virtual CGI influencer. He's sort of been, he's an old friend and always someone that has, I think, deeply understood culture, media, technology, and how the, how the three sort of interplay between each other. And the early why was just sort of, was during the pandemic, I think the overall, like, what is happening? How are we connecting with people? Like, where are things going? On top of also, like, what's happening in this emerging Web3 space was just something that was on his mind and a lot of other people's minds. And, and, and the early exploration of why FWB was, you know, what does it look like to sort of take a scene or take a community of people and sort of bring them, bring them on chain in terms of like create incentives between those individuals. And like, that was sort of like the simply exploration at the time. It was more like, cool, we'd all been a part of different cultural movements, scenes, communities, different pockets of culture. What does one look like where there's actually some sort of an asset that is interlinking everyone? And what does that shared mechanic or shared incentive look like? And does that change the way the group operates either digitally or physically? And so it was really an experiment at the time. Trevor minted the FWB token over the weekend as a hackathon project, sent it around to a bunch of his friends as a joke, made it so if you held the token, you got to join the Discord. And there were, you know, 20 people, 30 people, 50 people, 100 people. And, and quite quickly, it was like, oh, we were just like hanging out in Discord figuring out what discord was figuring out what like a lot half of us have taught ourselves how to even create a wallet and custody this token like a lot of us were myself included pretty new to web3 and the experiment was just like what does it look like to have value accrue to the edges of a network that was kind of the exploration at the time right we had seen a lot of different communities or a lot of different brands are typically centrally owned right it's someone who's coming out and starting a company your users of that platform or your members of a specific club but it's, it's rare in that, you know, you don't actually hold ownership or value in every component of the network typically doesn't hold value in that overall system, right? And sort of that exploration of how does this sense of ownership, how does the sense of value accrual, how does that affect how people treat each other, how people interact with each other, how people coordinate to accomplish projects together. And so early on, it was, what does a community-owned scene look like or a community-owned social network look like? And I don't think any of us envisioned that it would kind of grow to this scale. Uh, but at the time, yeah, it was a lot of us just kind of figuring out what the hell Web3 even was. And to figure it out, we kind of just threw ourselves off the deep end of in terms of creating the token and playing with it and passing it around and providing and breathing sort of utility into it. That's so fascinating, the idea that most networks are really centrally owned, whether they're like traditional tech companies, like big social networks, or if they're, you know, even just a small group of friends, typically there's like some very central leadership, maybe they own the LLC and they own pretty much all the profits of it. And, you know, if people invest their time or their energy into the network, yeah, it might get a little bit better, but they don't really reap any, you know, financial rewards from it. And so I'm fascinated to just ask a little bit of like, how does that financialization 
of social life and friendship impact how people behave? Like, is it the idea that if you're, oh, you're hoping that oh, if I make this club more fun to be a part of, I make it more interesting, more resourceful, then more people will want to join, demand goes up, the coin value goes up? Or is it really just the idea, is it more about the idea of a shared treasury and the idea that you can actually, you know, hire people, build projects, fun, cool things together because you're all kind of putting skin in the game? Yeah, I think the answer is it's it's really a blend between the two, right? I think a lot of, you know, and, and, I, and I'm only speaking for sort of our our community um, or our project that a lot of other financialized groups have, you know, sit in different levels of the spectrum of how critical of a role the financialization of that asset plays in sort of its day-to-day patterns or its day-to-day actions. But at least for us, I would say like the fact that there is this financialized layer that sits on top of FWB really lends itself to two components. I think one, it lends itself to the sense of like co-ownership and the sense of like, if you see trash on the ground, like pick it up. So you, you, you see a lot more of like, I call it a FWB is sort of like a digital co-op where a lot of it is often like, cool, like if there's problems, you know, it isn't about necessarily like call customer service to fix it. It's like, hey, how can you jump in and fix it? So there's sort of this like implicit, cool, if you're an owner as a part of this network, how can you help steward this place to make this a better place as opposed to, oh, I paid a fee for a service and so I'm demanding excellent service here. And like that, that I think is a very like sort of subtle perk or, or sort of layer that sits on top of folks feeling like they have a sense of ownership. And then two, yeah, I think the shared, the access over the shared treasury through voting by holding, you know, the tokens is a huge component of what makes DAOs interesting and, and successful is, you know, group chat with the shared bank account has often been the sort of slogan for DAOs and that you have internet native groups of people stewarding medium to large amounts of capital in a way that's trustless and all visible on chain. And like, how does that allow for better decision making? How does that allow for more equitable distribution on different things? And like, how does that lead to more empowerment over the funds of how that community is managed, right? I think a a lot of us are a part of many different communities and even having visibility into like, well, what is this community spending its time and resources and energy on? And the fact that that's all by default transparent on chain makes it so you have, you know, we have monthly finance calls with our entire community about budget and budget allocation. And so I would say, yeah, it's really a mix between everything. There's obviously pros and there's and there's cons, but at least specifically for FWB, the financialization of it is more of this kind of like underlying implicit factor as opposed to most people I would say aren't in FWB to like make a lot of money. It's mostly people are there to surround themselves with a like-minded group of people who really sit at that intersection of Web3 and culture and want to figure out collectively where that goes together. What are some things that you guys have done that maybe you couldn't have done if you hadn't been kind of a crypto-powered DAO, if you didn't have a coin or in a treasury? You know, what couldn't you have done as just like a group chat or a group of friends or a traditional like membership, like you know, monthly membership paid uh, members group? So I would say like kind of what I touched on earlier, I think first off the just the simple, this is just the simple like force function of FWB being a DAO. In other words, our treasury sits in a Gnosis safe, which is a Ethereum based sort of, you think of it as like a, a crypto native bank account. All of that is public and visible by the community. So I think every incoming and outgoing transaction, I think that inherent immutable transparency is something that when a lot of folks are like, why couldn't this just be a social club? Why does it even need to live on the blockchain? I think is one major component. The second is, at the end of the day, what FWB is and what the FWB token is, is it's a community's own native currency. So we're seeing just like so much interesting behavior where like a lot of people join FWB because a friend sent them those tokens and then they traded those tokens or they created artwork and they listed their artwork on Zora or OpenSea for FWB and someone bought that work in FWB. So that's how they joined FWB. I think you see a lot more flexibility and creativity and how the token is fundamentally used that if it were just, I don't know, like recurring membership dues to a solo house, you don't have that kind of lateral movement and sort of creativity in how the token is almost used as this gifting vehicle, right? I think there's this really interesting book talking about how a lot of communities are built off the foundations of like gifting from like, you know, different tribes giving, you know, using seashells denominated as currency and how a lot of like, you know, even Burning Man is an example where like gifting is like a fundamental premise of it. I think gifting to an extent is often how a lot of communities grow in the early days where in the beginning, FWB was gifted out to a lot of different people and it was friends buying it and sharing it. And so I think that fundamental like crux of like the sharing and the gifting that only comes from a currency that the community itself owns that was on chain led to a lot of its sort of novelty, I think that led to where it is today. 
Yeah, I love the idea that anybody who's part of the group could propose something interesting to do with those funds. And if they get enough excitement around that project, they're suddenly like an executive in this in this group. Like they have a lot of power just by inspiring the other community members. And I think I love that idea. Thank you guys all for being here with us on Press Club where the big names in tech talk about the big ideas. If you want to give us a huge favor, hit that little square up arrow button at the bottom of the screen and give a little recommendation into the clubhouse hallway for who should come and join us. Make sure we get all the you know social community builders, crypto builders, thinkers here in the room with us to, to get to this awesome discussion. And definitely hit the little chat button and give us a, a question that you want to hear Alex answer. Otherwise, just hit the little press club button at the top of the screen, join press club so we can get you the future notifications about the show. So I want to hear a little bit more about the early days of getting to network effect, because I think lots of people have like grand ideas to start like a big group or a members club or something. And it's really hard hard to get that initial sense of like cohesion and enough people that other people start to take notice. What were those early days like for FWB and what were kind of some of your learnings from that experience that, you know, other community builders might be able to use? I think first off, early days for sure was a lot of collective figuring it out together, right? And I think like our premise that we've always had from day one was if we really build in service to the community and we really build for the community, ultimately by getting them like fundamentally more involved, they'll just eventually, you know, bring their friends along and you kind of create this like hub and spoke model where different folks are by simply having a great time contributing or participating are bringing their friends along. So it's almost like, you know, without like reducing it too simply, it's like an aggressive affiliate program where you just have people who are like really enjoying their experience and you, everyone knows like, Word of mouth is sort of the strongest way to grow anything authentically. It's not an ad or it's not a link that you just find or, or a salesperson who calls you. It's about someone having a truly meaningful experience that moves them or that something connects with them. And, and then they just have to tell their friends about it and bring their friends along because I think inherently we're a sort of social creatures. So I think just FWB being like so in the early days, like so experimental and so fresh and new and this idea of like, it was at a time when everyone was really figuring out what crypto was or Web3 was from, you know, at least this most recent wave and FWB kind of being like the place where you could figure it out. And, and, and it didn't feel impersonal, like a, like a, like a Reddit forum board. And it was with people who were really like, you know, like-minded and curious and curated to an extent. I think it just created a, a really special moment in time, especially during COVID when there weren't really too many external distractions or, or, or options. And so I would say to a lot of other community builders, really focus on your core community, right? For us, it was really seeing, okay, here are the people who are the most active inside of FWB. It's, it's a friend of that person. It's a friend of this person. And, and finding ways to bring them closer together. And I would always use this phrase that the strength of a community is really defined by its one-to-one -one connections between individual. So it isn't just everyone's individual connection to the brand, but the more connections and, and, and sort of authentic relationships people can form with individual nodes within the network, the sort of more resilient the network becomes. And then you almost start to see like factions form or we always equate FWB to a city where there's, you know, the Upper West Side and there's Bushwick and they might be two totally different vibes of people, but they're both in New York City and they both want to see New York City sort of win or succeed or grow or, or, or still call New York City their home or, or whatever. And so I think early, like how to sort of create strong communities that grow organically, I think really focus on establishing those one-to-one, many-to-many -many connections between the, the entire network so that it really can take on a life of its own and it isn't dependent on, say, a single point of failure like a charismatic founder or leader or, or, or whatever, but can really sort of stand the test of time because it, it, it sort of is just by design a lot more of a resilient structure. Yeah, I think that's really smart. The idea that you, the first thing you should be doing when you're trying to build out one of these groups isn't telling everybody to invite all their friends. It's giving them an experience that's so worth it that they will tell their friends about it, that they will organically drive those people to come in and join you. And I think that that sense of like joining an affiliation brings me to the next question, which is really about like, you know, how do we help people feel less anonymous, alone, lost on the internet? Like the internet is so big and, you know, we're all kind of striving to, to, you know, build out our own sense of identity, our own sense of belonging, especially with like 
isolation from COVID and work from home, secularization, like the polarization in politics. Seems like there's a lot of things pulling people apart. And when you go online, it can feel so big, like you're not really sure you have an impact. So I just love to hear like how things like FWB give people that sense of purpose and like what you do purposefully to make sure people feel like they belong and they're not just like joining a group and are still anonymous or like, you know, completely random and alone, even though they're in this crowded room. So I think Venkatesh Rao wrote about this, uh, the cozy web. I don't know if you, but I thought this was such an amazing theory, which was just kind of the notion that, you know, the, the, the wider internet has just become this like massive public town square, wider internet we can define as like existing social media platforms, or it sort of feels like you have to sort of be the loudest person in the room and you're just kind of shouting and you're more of just like there to, you know, it's crowded with like ads and spam. And it's just sort of this, like this layer that sits on top of like actual meaningful connection. And if you sort of drop down a couple layers beneath, he talks about the cozy web, which are private group chats that are defined by shared values and shared uh, life experiences that usually revolve around a specific topic or a specific shared sense of demographics. And he sort of predicts that that's like the direction in which the internet moves towards and frankly is where the internet sort of started, right? Forum boards and people hanging out on some very niche subreddit thread and then subreddit, Reddit actually being like the greatest example of like Reddit and then subreddits and thousands and thousands of subreddits with very strong communities of people who all like revolve around like mini golf in Southern California or whatever it is. And so I think like in terms of a sense of belonging, I actually hope and, and believe that, especially with the advent of a lot of web retooling, the sense of ownership, the sense of even how forking is, is such a promoted sort of theory in terms of like, if you don't like something, fork the code and build your own version. I presume that the next generation of social will, will often be a smaller and smaller concentric groups of like-minded values and, and, and an individual subscribing to maybe like one or two of these different groups. And that being sort of like, hey, this is actually my neighborhood pickleball league and we play every single week and this is one community. And then here's my other community that's more digitally native around these specific topics because I'm really into like cooking and whatever. And like that feeling like a way in which folks are able to really tap into that like internet native social community structure and ultimately at its essence arrive at that sort of sense of belonging and curation that I think is a direct response to how impersonal a lot of social media has become over the last, you know, five, seven years. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, you know, I think a, a great example of this is just like, if you do have a problem on something like Facebook and Instagram, good luck ever getting anybody from the company to actually help you unless you're like really well networked in the know to employees. And then you kind of have this back channel. But for most people around the world, they are completely divorced from the kind of means of communication that they rely on. And I think that that's, that's so precarious that like, you know, I've heard these horror stories of people who built their businesses forever on these social networks and then they kind of all suddenly disappeared because of like one one glitch or somebody like you know maliciously flagging their their community or their account and it's it's so devastating to them and there just really is no recourse and i feel like the world of DAOs has captured so much attention because people just finally feel a sense of participation. Like they're actually voting on things. They're suggesting proposals. They're affecting not only the content that comes out of it, but like the fundamental laws of physics of what they're building. And I think that that gives people such a sense of place and purpose and meaning that like no amount of just like publishing content in your tiny little walled garden of a community really can ever make you feel. Exactly. I think you nailed it. And I think for for instance, every time we've leaned into decisions that cross that usual boundary of like, oh, like, do I have permission to even have a say in this as a community member? We're like, yes, like we want you to fundamentally get more involved and share your opinion and let it be known because it's about a more, a more active sense of participation. An example would be, you know, last August when our community, we just come off a series of really amazing events we had thrown around Europe for the FWB Europe community. And we started to begin to be approached by different funding partners to invest in FWB. And the first thing I said was, cool, let me talk to everyone in the community if this is something that they would even be interested in. And we hopped on the Discord on a voice chat, like I think 50% of the community, 60% of the community showed up. And I was just like, hey guys, like what's our thoughts on venture capital? Is this something we'd be interested in? And that was just such a debate for weeks and weeks on end of people being like, no, you know, if we raise VC money, this is what will happen. Some people will be like, it's super important to just diversify our treasury and, and be able to, you know, weather a bear market. And ultimately, 
taking that entire process to a vote and asking the various investors to actually come join the community first and meet different folks and then ultimately pitch the community through Discord and allow the community members to ask questions, you know, such as, hey, well, you know, what, what is your expectation of ROI? On what timeline? Do you have growth metrics in place? And being able to like arrive at a negotiation where, you know, all the firms agreed to even delegate half of their voting power back to the community and, and then ultimately putting that up for proposal, having that pass. And then it, it, it sort of being this like really uh, inspiring moment for the community, almost like if Facebook 15, 20 years ago, you know, Peter Thiel sat down with their first thousand users and, 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 and negotiated in, in terms of, hey, what, what do you want from us? It was a very interesting kind of experience of just kind of level setting the playground and allowing for users to be more than users to actually be stakeholders in a conversation. A hilarious and very little known moment in Facebook's history was when they did ask people to actually vote on their own policies. And it was just kind of a disaster because what they <laughs> what they said was you had to have at least 50 percent of the vote of like the, the user base voting for it to be binding, which like at the time was like. 500 million people, which is like, which means that like, you're talking about like a magnitude more people than vote in like the US like presidential elections just to be able to like get something changed on Facebook. And so they found that they basically were like using it as a way to like put out a proposal to a community, not have to take a binding response from them and then just doing whatever they wanted. So like, it was basically like democracy laundering in the sense that like they made it seem like you had a say, but you really, really definitely didn't. And eventually, like activists would be try, like tried to, you know, basically overthrow Facebook through this process. It totally didn't work. Then, you know, and now Facebook has this like oversight board, which is made up of like a revolving set of like random community members. But like again, they don't have to take the like uh, advisors no as like governance, right? Yeah. There's, they don't have to take anything as binding. So again, it just really feels like yeah, like we're making it look like we don't have centralized control, and it gives us a sense of defensibility when people are like, you have too much control, but they really, they're really not. And so this feels like something that's very, very different here. So I would love to hear how you've seen these kind of like tech and art communities evolve through your time. Because I know before you were, you were helping run hackathons, then you were working for summit series. Now you've seen the rise of DAOs. Like how has these communities evolved? Like were there, do you imagine like phases like, okay, in the first phase, everyone just wanted like the biggest names. Then we realized that like that didn't actually make a great community. And then it was all about all this like purpose and mission, but then we found out that like a lot of times you don't actually live up to that purpose and mission. And then it was like, oh, we're just trying to have a good time and it's okay to just be hedonistic. Like, we'd love to hear your thoughts on like how these kind of things have evolved over time. There's thousands and thousands of these communities out there. So I think it'd be hard to draw any one specific line. What I can say is like at the root of this is what you touched on earlier, honestly, is just a sense of belonging, right? And I, I was talking to uh, Scott Hyfe, who has become a really good friend of mine through New York, and, and he, he started meetup.com. And I, th- I just think that's such a fascinating example because he essentially created a platform that existed just to facilitate these micro communities to emerge and grow and blossom. And, and we were able to sort of compare and contrast from just like a data perspective where, uh, you know, I have my data points of different communities that I helped start or, 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 or steward or grow. He's looking at it from like, a, oh, here's 10,000 communities and here's the ones that actually were able to build sustainable economies in meetup.com and here are the ones who did it. And I think all in all, like we use this phrase that we both really resonated with and that a really strong community isn't actually leaderless, but it's sort of leader full and that it's like full of leaders that emerge that play on different roles. And so I think the core like health metric or whatever of a, of a really strong community is identifying and nurturing those leaders. Who are those people who sort of organically raise their hand, want to get more involved? And often they're even your critics. And because and at least I found when they're criticizing, they care. And if you just engage them and, and offer them a way to support, more often than not, they're like, I'm super down. I just love this thing so much that I'm pissed it's being run this way that I actually want to get involved and affect change. And so at least I think like how these different communities over time, whatever the themes are, or whatever the sort of genres are, I think the, the ones that are the healthiest often you know, are able to move into sort of more of this headless entity that is defined by sets of rotating leaders that are emergent from within the group, as opposed to even just, you know, what I call single point of failure communities, where it's just everything revolves around one person. And famously, those examples are bands, right? If you have a really great band or a musician, and everything revolves around fans of that band, and then that artist quits, sells out, leaves, whatever, the test is, will that community continue to live on? 
And so I think like if you just if you even look at that as a benchmark across music or culture, what are those bands that have sort of groupies that have existed significantly longer than the activism of that specific artist? So I've been part of several of those communities like Summit Series. And, you know, what they often experience, though, is this kind of like talent downward spiral where you start with like, you know, it's really small. It's super intimate. Maybe it grows a little bit and it hits this like amazing moment where like everyone there is incredible. They're super engaged and, and really want to contribute. Everyone's like just aspirational and excited to meet each other. And then they grow a little bit more. Maybe it's for business or they're just like so much demand that they want to make bigger and bigger events. And then you start to see like the really big people are like the community's diluted a little bit. And so like maybe they stop coming or, you know, you start to get some graft where like community leaders are like letting in random friends who maybe are, are more like, you know, just piggybacking and not necessarily like really having a deep impact on the community. And then you have more and more of those like really the people that people really look up to and are excited to join the community to be a part of next to leave. And then it leads the next rung down to leave and the next rung down to leave. And then all of a sudden it's kind of random people and not a lot of people that necessarily understand the original ethos or like are fully indoctrinated and onboarded into the community. It's a lot of noobs. Have you seen that happen in other communities? And like, how have you thought about trying to prevent that from happening with FWB? Yeah. The cynical part of me is always like designed for the inevitable, which I think inevitably that happens, right? And it's actually the Zen way to look at it would be that it will happen. It will always continue to happen. And it's how do you design a resilient structure that actually takes new life forms in and of itself, right? It takes on new shapes and sizes and deaths and rebirths, right? I think the fool is the one who tries to like hold on forever and says the sort of like, oh, it'll never be like the old days. Because you know what the truth is? It will never be like the old days, right? It's impossible for it to be like the old days because the old days were like a hundred of people, a hundred people hanging out in a group chat during COVID and it, it'll never, those conditions will never be all figuring out what web three was and watching the first NFTs drop on foundation and open and it being this like crazy different time and, and experience. Um, and so I think for us, at least it's thinking along that line of like, where does the river flow in terms of like, don't try to control it instead, just try to design ways for it to have new life, right? Give tools for people to actually build on top of your platform on top of your city so they can have smaller groups and, and, and more concentric groups and, and they can feel that sense of intimacy all the way to just doing like little things here and there. I think recently, three days ago, a community member spun up a channel inside of FWB that was like season zero, which is our first ever season. And it was just got together everyone who joined in that first season and everyone flooded back into it and people who hadn't chatted in a year because they started to hear, oh, wow, there's this pop-up channel for everyone who was here since day one. And like, it was just everyone kind of like, reminiscing and high school reunion energy, right? So I think it's, it, the answer is both like really think strategically about ways to kind of re-engage and bring folks back in and, and create these sort of moments. And then long tail, be prepared for inevitably your thing won't always be the coolest thing forever. It won't always be like the old days. And instead it's building up a, a process in which like a Phoenix can sort of like die and be reborn, allow for the, the community to be this living and breathing organism, just like New York City, right? Like remember in COVID, everyone's like, New York City's dead. Right after COVID, it's fully back, you know, next year it might be dead again and everyone's going back to, you know, whatever, LA, and then it comes back. I think it's just build a resilient city. The core people should stay if, if they have sort of the right reasons to do sort of the right value alignment. And, and ultimately, and finally, like a big experiment with FWB is with this introduction of this sense of inequity or the sense of the token, the sense of ownership, does that lead to perhaps stronger organic or retention or community growth? That's what we're really curious to see how that plays out. We're only a year and a half old, but so far we're seeing a lot of those core people who are here from day one still very much have a vested interest, both socially and financially, in, in seeing FWB you know, live to its fullest potential. I love it. I want to zoom out a little bit and ask, like, you know, in five or 10 years, what are you kind of imagining FWB's impact to be? Like, what is your real mission beyond just like letting people experiment and own this network together? Like, is there some unifying like direction you want to take things in or, you know, some purpose that you want to have that's a little bit grander than just having fun and exchanging ideas? Yeah, I think um, ultimately that'll be what the community decides, right? I think we recently actually put out a, we put out a, a census, we called it, uh, about a month ago, and we just got the results back in last week. And the whole community has been kind of reviewing it and devouring it to an extent of just like, why are people here? Why are we gathering at FWB? And, and interesting to hear people's different sort of perspectives and visions. I think ultimately, like, 
if I switch my like mayor hat and just kind of Alex, like, what do I think FWB could become or what's, what's most interesting to me about it is, is this exploration of like vertically integrated communities, right? Like, like a community that is able to own its own currency, own its own technology, right? We're building software. We have a whole software pod and product pod that's creating Web3 ticketing and Web3 social network primitives. And, and, and it's been really fun to watch that grow. Um, you know, to, to, we've begun creating our own physical products. We have our own cl- like club, we have our own mate drink uh, that we partnered with the Taika folks on. And it's like our own club mate, yerba mate drink that we serve at all of our events. Uh, and so it's like, the, if you just extrapolate that further, like what is a vertically integrated community look like where we eventually begin to own our own, you know, land and real estate and hospitality ventures. And we, own, we, we own and create software that powers our community like we've created this ticketing tool called Gatekeeper that allows for anyone to spin up events, first starting with FWB. And if you hold the token, you get to throw this event up and you can verify if someone else is holding that token and let them into your event like IRL. And we've already processed like 30 or 40,000 event RSVPs through it. And so I think this vertically integrated community vision is super exciting to a lot of us. And I think if you go a level above that, Balaji just put out his book, what does the social network state look like, right? And I think that sort of vision of how are the next countries formed, I think, you know, ambitious and could be a bit hyperbolic, but it's just interesting to think about, okay, if a group of people have their own currency and they begin to, you know, gather in all these different cities and and, and, and have their own shared set of values, like, is it really that much different from, from, from its own country or its own city? Um, you know, we have our own immigration policy in terms of how we think about new, how do new members join? We have our own, you know, monetary policy and fiscal policy and trade import export policy. Like it's a lot of that starts to get fun when you think about, you know, FWB right now having around, you know, 8,000 token holders. What does it look like, you know, when it hits 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 and that being the size of a small town in Europe. So yeah, we're all interested in that in terms of like, how do these resilient communities actually begin to fund and create really interesting ideas that ultimately bring people closer together in the network and having it potentially mirror new ways of living and, and, and new ways of convening and in new models that, you know, I don't think everything is as black and white as it used to be of like, oh, this is the startup formula. And instead, there's other ways to think about creating resilient organizations beyond just simply like corporations and instead thinking a lot about FWB, like building an internet city. I would love to hear a little bit about your own sort of inspiration and were there, you know, sci-fi books or, you know, prior kind of anarchist associations or things that really like help inspire FWB? Like I constantly think of um, this amazing book, Freedom Trademark. Uh, It's this book about like a whole society uh, that sort of rises up in the shadows where, you know, contributors to this, like this AI's master plan for humanity get awarded cryptocurrency for like becoming more like self-sustaining by basically like moving away from this like you know very fragile society to one where like everybody knows how to kind of survive on their own and communities can be fully independent it reminds me a lot of this but also things like seasteading and you know there's a is actually coming up this weekend is this or, like, you know this incredible festival called ephemeral where it's almost like burning man on the water in the sacramento river delta where people just bring their own boats or any type of floating vessel hitch them all together into this flotilla build like floating dance floors and hold this programming the whole week. And there's no centralized management, no ticketing. There's no organization at all. It's literally just completely driven by people's own desire to make this thing happen. And it's fascinating to see that like it's the same coin as FWE, but the flip side where instead of things being, you know, rigidly or like, you know, having real structure around channels and pods and committees and coins, the idea that it's just totally open ended uh, and whatever people want to make it themselves with almost no structure. So we'd just love to hear if like there's things that have inspired you along your path or that just like turned you into wanting to be a community builder in the first place. If there was like some childhood experience there that like made you like, you know, I got, I got to bring the friends together. The thing that gets me the most excited is just like how, what is, what is large scale human coordination look like? Like I'm just really, really interested in that sort of like prompt and especially things like that festival, things like Burning Man is like a, a massive example. And I'm not even a huge burner. I've only been like once. I remember going just like almost from like a anthropological standpoint of just like, how does this even work? And I was just like so blown away that like 80,000 people agreed to live in this environment, play by these rules for this for the course of the week and, and it sort of working uh, and then sort of the study of, of semi-autonomous zones, right? How do you create these temporary social structures that people adhere to? 
just for the sake of like, does that open up a new perspective or, or, or sort of introduce any new ways of living? To be honest, not a huge sci-fi kid. It was more just, I've always loved bringing people together and culture stuff. I managed a lot of bands. I threw a lot of parties in college and, and, and beyond. And I've always, you know, maybe it's a, it was part of growing up in kind of a suburban area where I didn't feel like I 100% fit in. And the way I did that was by bringing different folks together and, and by throwing different events and found that kind of kismet or that magic being when like large groups of people came together. And then just obviously, as, as just kind of like a tech nerd, just became really interested in like, well, how does that exist digitally and in digital environments? And then what's that crossover between the two? Like, I remember the first FWB event we threw, well, I was really interested just sort of studying like, okay, I've thrown a lot of club parties in my life. How does a club party change if everyone in here holds this shared asset? Does that change the way people treat each other? Does that make people buy a drink for a friend? And even if they don't know them, because they assume what goes around comes around. And it was really cool to see like people serving the DJ coffee at night and everyone just being so generally open and nice. And, you know, not a lot of like the usual creepiness you feel at clubs because everyone felt like, oh, there's almost like this soft incentive layer to like be to like contribute and be positive as a, or, you know, as opposed to this kind of dog eat dog mentality. But yeah, I would say like really just interested in how humans can sort of scale their coordination. I, uh, previously to FWB, I was, I was uh, involved with summit series and, and, and was a partner there and had a lot of fun watching and participating in like the acquisition of powder mountain, a 10,000 acre ski resort from this community and learning how to fundraise, watching the community fundraise that capital and acquire the ski resort and, and have this vision of building a town in Eden, Utah, and, and, and all the trials and tribulations and exciting, fulfilling components of it was just so wild to see like, cool, if we put our minds together and we coordinate well enough, you know, we can pull off pretty large scale projects like that. Yeah, I think it's that sense of camaraderie that I find most exciting because I've seen it in a bunch of very different, you know, settings. Like, yeah, you see it at something like Burning Man where there's some level of like ardor to get there. Like it's a little bit of a struggle. So it's almost like the the event or the community is hazing itself just to make everyone there feel like they've all gone through this kind of tough experience. And so they're they're bonded by that. Or you have things like um like Bergheim, this incredible nightclub in Berlin. It's notoriously difficult to get into, you know, this bouncer named Metalface got all these like tattoos and piercings. He's super selective. Most people don't get in, even like celebrities, you can't buy your way in. There's no bottle service. And so if you do get in, there's really this sense of like camaraderie that like everyone else is there for a reason. They like, they passed this bar and it's not dissimilar to what you hear of at, like at Ivy League schools where even in like the dating scene, people are like, oh, you've already passed the admission missions bar. So you're like one step closer to me feeling comfortable around you. And I think all of this comes down to this idea of, like you said, the cozy web, where if you can take this really big internet where people feel totally anonymous, they're not really deeply connected to anybody, they can't really trust anyone, or even just like invest time in giving somebody else the time to like tell their story or really hear them out. You know, when you break things down into slightly smaller pods or clubs or communities, suddenly people are like, yeah, I'll take the time. Like you're a total stranger. I don't know any Anything about why we would have in, what we would have in common or if you have any real like ROI to me talking to you, but I still just want to spend my time with you and hear you out because that's how you build those real friendships. And it's it's tough without some sense of a container that gives people some some you know shared context for this. And I feel like that's what I'm most excited about with the web. And so I would love to hear like, have you seen other web three communities that you really like that are doing this? Or have you seen other methods of like attaining that level of like in group camaraderie yeah i mean there's so many different like online and um offline examples that i think are are really starlight i mean i think in in web3 definitely like you know even the board apes which which you know isn't even a huge overlap with fwb specifically but like seeing kind of the, the amount of fervor around that community has been really interesting to watch or or, or projects like nouns has been really amazing to see the folks there feeling a real sense of ownership and directive over over that community too. Yeah. Like offline communities where I've just, I've always been, you know, working in music. I've always been interested in like scenes of scenes and in the underbellies and, and, and always seeing the most passionate ones are usually the small, like 200 person cap venue where people are just going absolutely nuts. And it's a sign of like, Hey, I was there early. Uh, but yeah, I think, the, the, you know, what I've enjoyed throughout my life, my, my life is just kind of connecting those dots between online and offline communities, technology driven ones, culturally driven ones. And, where are those interesting overlaps and what are those sort of similarities or common threads that can be pulled from? And 
distilled into their core essences and then sort of implemented into other factors. At the end of the day, like whatever everyone's building, I think all of it just comes down to everyone just wanting a deeper sense of belonging and connection. I think that's kind of the, the whole reason for existence. In my opinion. So I think one of the things that come with that is that like to develop that sense of camaraderie or that shared context, often we do that through some sense of exclusivity, which isn't always you know, meshed well with, I think, a lot of the ethos of, of Web3, which is about more inclusivity. And so I would love to hear how you guys have thought about balancing that, you know, like having a selection committee and an admissions board who kind of vet people, you know, how do you, you know, make sure that you have people that are incredible contributors are really exciting thought leaders, people that people want to actually be around and talk to, while also making sure that you're not just like, devo- you know, deferring to credentialism saying, oh, you have to have been a founder or go to this school or started something or been this early in this type of community to get to be a part of this. Uh, because I think like figuring out that balance, which is like the right number of interesting, new, fresh legs coming into a community while still like maintaining, you know, the, the norms and allowing that kind of transfer of knowledge over time is so important. And, you you know, being having a great level of quality while still being really inclusive and making sure people don't feel like they're unfairly excluded is so critical for this kind of stuff. So like, how have you thought through that? I know that's like an incredibly thorny question. We've thought about it a lot. And I think really it comes down to there's like, there's the, there's the high and there's the low and, and sort of the tactical in between, which is that, you know, in general, I, when I say I'm in praise of exclusivity, I don't mean the traditional normative, like, oh, you're too, you're not cool enough. You can't sit with us. I mean, the, what would the world be without exclusivity? Everything is exclusive to an extent and it doesn't ha- it shouldn't be measured in my opinion by like class or, or wealth or race or socioeconomic or location. But, but I think if you, if you get down to the root of what exclusivity is, it's just about like like-minded people or, or who share the same values who want to come together and, and by drawing that line, it allows for that group to grow tighter and stronger bonds, right? I think if you think of even like, you know, I, I keep going back to the city analogies, New York is exclusive. It's, you can visit, but it's expensive to live here and, and it has its barriers. But it, there's a reason why like New Yorkers feel like they're proud to call themselves New Yorkers. If everything is fully inclusive, then nothing is sort of anything at all is my general sort of opinion. Uh, in terms of like being inclusive, I think that's something that like when I say inclusive like that, like that, that to me comes down to the ultimately the values of an organization. And if they're strong enough to withstand socioeconomic class, you know, whatever the traditional barriers might be. And then that's having a really clear mission. And so for us, it's really about bringing cultural creators and maintainers into Web3. In our, our community run application process, we have nothing about title, money, how big their Web3 wallet is. It's literally like, is crypto the least interesting thing about you? How can you contribute and how are you contributing to culture? And, and how, what do you want to bring into this community? And so we let in everyone from like 19 year old college students who are amazing art design students at Central St. Martin's all the way to like, you know, whatever, legendary household name type people. And it's really about having a strong set of values as to why they're there. Because if you haven't codified your organization, your community's values, and it's just come on, come all, eventually you'll just have a very diluted, flat community. So that's, that's generally our perspective is both from a high level, like there is a role for exclusivity and things in general, where it's just about rewarding people who find things early, who dig and about bringing people who share like-minded values. And then on the sort of immediate side, it's like, yeah, like as long as it's baked into the values of that organization and you can withstand that, then you should be able to nurture and grow. And the thing is, the truth is communities, your community shouldn't be for everyone, right? The whole thousand true fans thing. It's about really finding who truly resonates with what you're specifically offering. And then, you know, on our end, we've done, we put in a lot of work where we started a fellowship program and we have a whole grants program and a whole gifting program. And so we've worked to create and reduce the barriers when the barrier to entry is high. But all in all, it's, it's more about, I believe, just having a really strong set of values that you can sort of stand behind and that sort of, you know, provide context to what you're keeping in and what you're keeping out. I love that. I hope that we can move towards almost like a passionocracy where it's not just about, you know, how much you can do, but like how much you want to do. It's not about like who you are, but like how much you're actually willing to put into this community. And it doesn't have to be money. It doesn't have to even be expertise. It can really just be that like pure love and almost fandom of that community. Because I think those are the people that actually make other people really want to be there. They're the ones that are magnetic and they're the ones that get people get things done. So I'm going to go through some of our, our top insights 
highlights from today. But I just want to thank everyone for being here on Press Club. Uh, if you're listening and you're building something in the future of Web3, we'd love to hear about it. Our fund, SignalFire, we're investors in a bunch of really interesting Web3 startups like SuperDAO, building DAO infrastructure, or Alchemy, which powers a lot of the NFT marketplaces with node infrastructure. So if you're building something there, we'd love to hear about it. We're investing seed to Series B and love helping our companies with our recruiting technology. Beacon can give you lists of the best people who are the most likely to leave their jobs for any position. But let's talk about some of the amazing insights that Alex from FWB gave us today. And you talked about in the early days, you know, Trevor McFedry has launched this thing, minted this coin, and this really small group of friends was really just teaching each other how to use crypto. They were totally new to Web3. And it was this very special moment, you know, during COVID when there was so little else going on, people felt so divorced from each other and so isolated that, you know, there was the perfect catalyst for a group like FWB to come together. And, you know, it's the, the real ethos is about like what happens when value accrues to the edges of a network where there's the community truly owns the network and it's not just the founders, the central actors, the executives that you know that profit or get powerful from it, but that everybody part of it has a vote and, and can propose new things for the group to do and can actually benefit in the the upside of it, especially if they pour their own love and, and effort into this. And it's that sense of co-ownership where like if you see trash, you pick it up. If there's you know something that you want to fix, you don't call customer service, you fix it yourself. But also this idea that when you have share, a shared treasury, suddenly you can really fund each other's projects and, and let people's creativity run wild because they have this whole community behind them. And when you have transparency there too, you will, you don't have to worry about embezzlement. You don't have to sort of be suspicious of, of the central actors, but instead you can really believe that like everybody is working in service of this like bigger goal and this shared value system. And that through token incentives and gifting to people, they actually get rewarded for making those contributions. And it doesn't have to be fully codified, but it can really get people excited about, you know, investing their time and love and effort and care into a community like this. And, you know, Alex gave some incredible advice to new community builders, which is like the way you grow is not by telling everyone, you know, to go out and invite people to join the group. It's by creating experiences that are so vivid, so, so incredible, uh, so you know, life-changing that people naturally want to bring their friends in because they want them to get to a taste of that as well. Um, and you know, the, the idea of like driving the density of connections is so important too, that like you can't just have everyone loosely affiliated, but if you actually get everyone to introduce themselves to each other, you build more and more bonds within a community, you're less and less likely to leave and churn because it's not just like one person holding you in there. It's not a, a single point of failure. It's not, you know, a cult of personality of some individual. It's the entire network that, that keeps you there. And that's really a, behind this idea of the cozy web that, you know, the web started as a small group of people just chatting over forums. And, you know, after a, an interlude of big social networks where we really had very little power and we were kind of like lost amongst this enormous population of the internet, we're getting back to this idea where people can build their own things. They can build their own intimate communities. They can feel actual agency within them, that they're not just a participant. They're not just a consumer, but they're actually a creator of it as well. And yeah, I love the idea that you brought up from the meetup.com founder saying that like a strong community isn't leaderless, it's leaderful. And the idea that you can take some of your biggest, biggest critics and turn them into those emerging leaders. And by having that kind of headless entity without that single point of failure, you're a lot more anti-fragile. You stick around for a long, lot more time. And, you know, a lot of communities desperately try to avoid this downward talent spiral where the most inspirational or you know successful people you know are part of the community but then when they leave the next group below them leaves and it goes down and down until the community is kind of diluted but you know you can't be the coolest thing forever and you have to kind of plan that things will change and evolve and instead of trying to like you know keep an iron grip on how things were it's about you know evolving to see whatever your new community really wants and I love that like what you guys have done with that is, you know, not only building your own currency, but building your own products like Gatekeeper for uh, for like Web3 ticketing and token gating, also things like having your own mate drink and just having that that feeling of, of really building things together. And you know, this is kind of the start of what a social network state looks like over time. Like, can you be your own country? If you have your own monetary policy, your own import and export policy, your own immigration policy, you're getting pretty close to being a country yourself. And then we really get to experiment with what large scale 
human coordination looks like. And when you have those token incentives behind it and you have that sense of camaraderie, you know, people treat each other differently. They give each other that time of day. They don't default into that creepiness. And instead, you know, you can have exclusivity. Like it's not about that you can't sit with us. It's about having a shared value system and knowing that if everything's fully inclusive, there's no real borders and boundaries. And those boundaries often give uh, give rise to the best art. And so community shouldn't be for everyone, but for the people that it is for, you just got to double down and keep making it for them because that's how they will excel in your passionocracy where they want to put in value and make this a better and better place to be. Does that capture the kind of ethos uh, of this, Alex? Well done. Bravo. (laughs) Well, thanks for that. So yeah, I want to ask you one final question, which is just if you had something to say to, you know, to social community builders, to Web3 builders out there, maybe based on your lessons from from building FWB, you know, or just something that you want people to really understand about how these communities can change their lives, what would you tell them? I would say like community building is more gardening than it is architecture and that you can't plan everything out in advance. It's not exact measurements. It's not prescriptive, but it's more gardening in that, you know, you have to prepare for things you can't prepare for. And you have to listen and see where things grow and, and sort of provide it with the right resources, light, water, nutrient rich soil, and it'll surprise you. And that'll be the most fulfilling and rewarding communities that you'll be a part of. So, you know, they shouldn't be too premeditated and you should allow room for experimentation because ultimately that's what will define the most exciting and energizing projects. That's amazing. I love that idea. It's, it's more about gardening than architecture. Thank you, Alex Ang, mayor of FWB, for your incredible insights on the future of social clubs. Uh, really appreciate you being here on Press Club, where the big names in tech talk about the big ideas. And we're really excited to see what you all out there, you know, use this knowledge to go build and go find you know people with that shared value system. Go create those early network effects and make something of your own control and where you truly have agency and you know longer feel lost in this big wide internet. So thank you so much for being here. I'm your host, Josh Constein, former editor at large for TechCrunch and now a venture partner at SignalFire. If you're building something in the future of Web3 or social or infrastructure, we'd love to hear about it. We invest C to Series B uh, and we love helping our companies with recruiting as well as in-house experts like me and PR or the X-Stripe CMO for go-to-market strategies. So if you're building something or you know somebody who is, have them DM me. I'd love to hear about what they're, what they're making. Thank you again, Alex, and thank you FWB for being such an incredible supporter of this and very excited to to see where where you go with this incredible club and you know building your own kind of social network as a state of its own so thanks a lot for being here with us Alex thanks for having me guys cheers take care I really deeply thank you for being here with me today and I hope you go build your own community where you truly feel like you're no longer lost and and go make that passionocracy something where you want to truly invest your time. So thank you so much for being here on Press Club where the big names in tech talk about the big ideas. I'm Josh Constein. Farewell. Farewell.